0: This is the last shot that we got, all right? We're going to run the pink advance at
1: him. Now, boys, don't get caught watching a paint drive. All right, take it. And there we go. Now we're ready. Welcome back after a little bit of a hiatus, to another edition of the Picket Fence podcast. I'm Derek Early. I'm Cam Smith. Yeah, it, it has been a hiatus. It's been a little bit. When school starts, it gets... Uh, free
0: time is slim pickings, I think. So I'm glad to be back and uh, uh, excited about doing another episode with this. Uh, Derek, how have you been,
1: man? <laughs> I've been well. You know, school year, like you said, it. once you get rolling into the year, you kind of just get in the... The groove and everything else just kind of seems to go to the, the back burner and priorities shift and schedules change and takes a minute to get everything back in line, but here we are and I'm ready to go. Good to see you. How's your year going?
0: Uh, it's going good. I'm not going to describe it though as getting back in the groove. It's more of a black hole. It just sucks here <laughs> and there's no there's no light and there's no escape. You're just in it until May so, uh, or at least fall break.
1: So, <laughs> Tract, tractor beam. sucked you right in.
0: Yeah, we're done. We're done until until then. But, yes, I'm glad to be back. Um, we've got some really interesting topics to, to discuss uh, on this episode. And most importantly, discussing, uh, when we get to our four-quarters segment, discussing troubles we've seen with Team USA. And then our big theme today is going to be rebounding, or um, a better way to phrase that, the lack thereof. And I think that's yeah. going to be our, our, our big topic today is understanding... That with American basketball and the FIBA basketball tournament. But before we get into that, let's just get some some shoot-around going on and and chit-chat to get us uh, all warmed up. Derek, uh, what's basketball been like for you in in the past month? I know the news isn't that hot right now, but uh, what have you been into during our hiatus?
1: No, slow news. Um, Just kind of paying attention, obviously, to the FIBA stuff, the World Championships that have been going on. Um, the different teams that you and I have had a chance to talk about. We'll get into that a little bit more as we as we dive into this episode here. Uh, but a couple of surprises there. You know, like Paying attention to the Bahamas international team and some of the players that they have. I, that's been really enjoyable for me. Um, reading up on some of the stuff that you've sent me. Checking out some of the videos that you've thrown my way. Talking about coaches clinics. Um, really just... Thoroughly enjoy this time of year because now we start to kind of pick each other's brains and have conversations and discuss about, you know, what's coming up at practice, what things do we want to do, what do you want to change, and I like hearing about your personnel because it doesn't give me a headache, I don't have to be there every day, and so I like talking about your team and your guys and what you want to do, but um, now just quite honestly, you spend the first, like, you know, you're as well aware of this as I am, you spend the first four or five weeks of school like you said, just trying to get, um, trying to get your feet underneath of you, and trying to get used to the year and kind of seeing what it's going to look like, and how things are going to go, and that's just kind of where I've been swimming in. And um, I know you probably, you guys are probably jumping into workouts and things like that. So how's that? How's everything playing out on your end?
0: Yeah, that's been great. We've had some open gyms uh, with some high school guys, Those you know, voluntary stuff. The guys can come in. We get up some good shots, let them scrimmage a little. We've had some youth open gyms on Sunday evenings, get the young guys in there playing ball. That's really fun. Um, Really, other than that, there's, like you said, it's this is the time of year, I think, when, you know, it's summer, and then this time of year, you know, it reflects March a lot. I think there's a lot of work that can be put in, Um, like you said, uh, we'll be talking about coaches clinics. I'm going to head up to, uh, there was supposed to be a coaches clinic in Indiana and it kind of, um, due to some, I guess, unforeseen circumstances. They're not going to have the clinic necessarily, but there'll be a coaches clinic with a lot of coaches there in Bloomington. Um, and it will at least be an open practice hosted at IU. So I'll be going okay. to that at the end of September. So, um, that's, that's really exciting for me to, uh, have that opportunity to go up there and pick the brains of some great coaches around the state. Um, Ryan Miller, who we've had on here on the podcast, uh, he uh, kind of sent that invite my way, so I'll be, you know, joining him along with some other great coaches. Um, they call it the the next wave, um, and there's it's like this big collaboration, and a lot of coaches are contributing articles that they write, or um, videos that they're breaking down, or just giving some presentations on some things. So it's it's just a big kind of sharing, um, a big collaboration with with all these coaches, and I think right. it's just trying to make everybody better. Um, so that's really been good. Um, also, just been kind of reading up and looking and studying some new things. Uh, I have a book that I've been reading called When the Garden Was Eden, and it's about those old '70s, 19, uh, 1970s Knicks teams that were, you know, so great and so uh, fun to watch, and I know that's not necessarily the case, hasn't been the case in the garden for quite some time, but um, that's been a great book to to look into. Um, and then also just getting into a ton of YouTube videos and all kinds yeah. of you know, coaches breaking stuff down, so um, just as much information as I can get while I've got time to sit down and explore instead of have, you know, the assignment for next Friday night, you
1: know. (laughs) Right, no kidding. Yeah, before the scouting report takes over and becomes your primary reading.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Well, uh, with that being said, uh, I'm glad we're back doing this. I'm glad we're, you know, we've still been diving into the game some. But uh, when we come back, we're going to get into our four-quarter segments and talk about the few hot topics going on in basketball right now. But um, definitely, definitely some interesting stuff. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. We're going to get into our four-quarter segment of the podcast here. We have some pretty fun topics and uh, a couple painful topics um, for fans of American basketball. We're going to start out in quarter one here as I start the clock on uh, just, we're going to call it FIBA standouts. So either teams, players, or certain elements of the FIBA tournament. Uh, I'm going to start the clock here that stood out to you, Derek. I'll let you start. What, uh, What stood out to you while watching and following the FIBA tournament?
1: Well, I mean, to keep it with the USA flair, kind of like you were speaking there at the beginning, the the pain, I think, maybe for USA basketball fans that was the FIBA tournament, going into that, obviously, with the expectation of any time Team USA, men's or women's, steps on a basketball court, they're supposed to win, and so maybe the, the, the biggest standout for me is the fact that not only did they not win, they didn't meddle in this particular tournament, and... I think looking at the team, the roster coming in, how it was constructed, obviously looks like some guys definitely took the summer off, Um, and I think that that's probably one frustrating point uh, for me is that anytime you have a a chance to be competitive on a global scale in a setting like this to represent your country in this type of tournament, I think you want to see your top tier players, you know, be eager to get out and to go play. And especially looking at the, at the teams that represented the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference that played in the finals, you know you had two teams that weren't necessarily loaded with American talent. Uh, you can look at it, Miami, obviously Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, uh, you know, but Denver's a pretty as as far as how their roster is structured, they're heavy in the foreign talent. And you know, looking at, at teams and, and players that that were not making. Uh, the finals, and obviously would have had opportunities to play that chose not to play. For me, that's frustrating as a fan, uh, just simply watching American basketball. But some other standouts for me, I thought Dennis Schroeder absolutely played his tail off in the, in the FIBA championships here. And I'm, I'm not going to sit here and we'll have a minute to knock on um, some of the things that we saw with, with Team USA, but to kind of highlight some guys I thought that really stood out. Um, Dennis Schroeder, for me, the the FIBA tournament MVP, uh, I thought played his brains out. And looking at the Canada team, Dylan Brooks going for 39 against Team USA there, um, knocking Team USA out of the tournament in overtime. Shea Gildress Alexander continues to do things that Shea Gildress Alexander does, um, going for 31 in the same game. So you have two guys that combined for 70 points there for Team Canada. That was a real problem for Team USA. And so I look at those types of performances from those guys, and I kind of alluded to the team Bahamas there early on here in our, in our part as far as watching them this summer. But Eric Gordon had some flashes of turning the clock back about 10 years and doing some things that we've not seen him do since his days with Indiana and some early years with the Clippers. And so getting a chance to see the Bahamas team play with Gordon and Buddy Heald and DeAndre Ayton, that was fun for me. Um, so as far as positive standouts, that's kind of where I look at it. We'll talk about Team USA in a minute. Um, but what were some of your, your high points?
0: So to continue really quick with Eric Gordon, that it was something that I almost forgot about until we started talking about this and, and looking back at everything. Um, uh, as soon as I saw that clip, I sent it to you, and it I mean, that was – Mind blowing! I didn't know he still had that in the in the tank. I mean, that's the kind of player that we thought was coming out of Indiana, and barring yeah. no injuries, maybe we could have seen more of that. But he was explosive. He's hitting threes, dunking on guys. It looked like it looked like, it, like, it, like he was in Indiana. It looked like he was dunking yeah. again. Uh, that was that was just awesome. As just an Indiana basketball fan to see him go out there and, and look like a superstar. Um, the player I have written down here is Shea Gildas Alexander. He kind of looks like a guy that's going to be a a sneaky MVP candidate, maybe not so sneaky anymore when the regular season comes around. Yeah, uh, he and Team Canada were super impressive. That was the team you talked about ahead of time before um, when we first talked about this this uh, this tournament coming up. You had talked about how good Team Canada would look, um, and you kind of nailed it there, um, especially keeping us from from meddling. That's really really tough. Some of the things that stood out to me, and you mentioned it a shooter, and I I loved watching him play in this, and he's not a player in the NBA that I you know am you know anxious to watch the right hitting game. yeah but along with him the chemistry of the german team was so impressive watching them from the beginning i was so impressed by them in their early games in like those those pool games you know where you just kind of play it doesn't quite count for anything but it helps you seed some teams yeah uh the chemistry of that team was unbelievable. The Wagner brothers um, and a lot of guys that were sprinkled in that play in the NBA like Dennis Schroeder um, and some other guys that, you know, aren't big names but you can just see the chemistry on that team. There's obviously the NBA guys that we see all the time but some of these international guys that we don't get to see in the NBA that are on these teams are very, very impressive. Yeah. Um, and the skill that stood out the most to me was the shooting and the NBA is so into three-point shooting now, and we see that, but when we watch the world game, there were not standouts, and we'll get into them again later, but there were not standouts on Team USA from the three-point line, and every other team around the world, everybody on those, those teams could knock down the yeah. three-point shot, and that was so prevalent, and they were so dangerous. You couldn't leave anybody open. Um, so those guys really stood out to me, but there's also another... Um, The two things I want to mention uh, here at the end is, one, Serbia goes to the finals against uh, Germany. And Serbia does not have who we would assume would carry Serbia to a finals in a FIBA tournament in Nikola Jokic. Right. If they're going to cruise to a championship game without the best (laughs) basketball player in the world, that's really scary come Olympics time. Yeah because we're talking about a guy who's winning NBA championships on a team you wouldn't expect with a roster that doesn't look like it's going to win an NBA championship, you know, year to year with some of these stacked teams. And now a Serbian team that can make it there without him next summer. I mean, we we could be looking at a guy that wins NBA titles and, and Olympic titles. And, and I don't know, that looked scary to me because team USA looked like they were in trouble and the Serbians looked very good without Joker. Yeah. Um, I'm saying if Joker plays, it doesn't look like Germany comes home with that title. Congrats to them; that's fantastic. Uh, but that Serbian team without Jokic looks super scary. Yeah, and the only in the mix next summer is something I look forward to watching as a basketball fan. Yeah, but as an American, <laughs> it, it worries me. Uh, the other one before the buzzer goes off here. Oh, I sent you this. And I was watching a lot of it to, to see how well it panned out. The Korean basketball team's approach to the free throw. That's my biggest FIBA standout. <laughs> they think in every free throw that they possibly can. Like, that's now their approach. Um, it's a pretty good percentage. Um And it's something that people are talking about while other teams adopt. I don't know, but I found it pretty interesting. Do you have a comment on the free throw bank before (laughs) the Puzzle off for interview
1: segment? Yeah, you and I talked, and I don't think it's a method that I would necessarily jump to adopting personally. But I look at it, too, from the percentages in the video that you sent. They went from shooting in the high 60s to shooting in the mid-80s as far as a team percentage. Yes. And... If there's that type of improvement, if you can get some guys who knowingly maybe aren't great free throw shooters, and they're able to be coached and listen, and will maybe take on this, you know, less than standard approach to a free throw, you know, certainly unconventional at mo at best. Um, but I don't. You and I both kind of thrive on statistics and numbers, and they don't lie. And with that type of improvement, maybe there's a little bit of method to the madness of the Koreans.
0: I don't hate it, um, to steal uh, one your, of your catchphrases there. I don't, I don't hate it. Um, <laughs> if there was somebody, I mean, I wouldn't teach it to a good free-throw shooter, but if there was a struggling one, I don't know, maybe we'll see a court Central Panther banking in some free-throws this year.
1: Hey, listen, um, that's, that's your job down there, Tonto.
0: Yeah, that's, that's right. All right, we're headed to quarter two. I'm going to start the clock. We alluded to it. Uh, Let's talk Team USA. I'm going to start just by saying this. I talked about Germany's chemistry and how scary Serbia looked, and they don't even have Jokic. Team USA didn't look like they were a team that was in sync. Um, And I'm going to let you take it from there, but that's kind of my big note.
1: Yeah, and to to say I'm displeased is probably being nice. Uh, This... This summer with USA Basketball reminded me a whole lot of kind of the, the, I guess the valley maybe more so than anything, that USA Basketball got into post-2000 like 2000 Olympics with kind of the Dream Team 2.0, and then from there the 2002 team was a roster that was just very quickly constructed and put together, the 2004 Olympic team that I think won bronze. Again, very quickly constructed, not a lot of practice time, very little team chemistry. And then going into 2006 was kind of the same deal, where there wasn't even like a rebuilding process that took place after 04. They kind of went back in just the same mold of, we're just going to grab, you know, 12 guys and see who wants to play. We're going to put offers out there. And basically whoever takes the bait takes the bait, and if they want to play, then they can play. Uh I would like to see USA Basketball get back to where Jerry Colangelo and Mike Krzyzewski had it, to where it becomes a commitment process for these guys. Uh, I do agree with you. I think it very much felt like a a, a disjointed-type team where it was kind of throw the ball to Anthony Edwards when things go sideways and watch him make a play. Uh, I do think that Anthony Edwards and Tyrese Halliburton carved themselves out a place on the team next summer in the Olympics. Statistically, Halliburton was the best player on the team. And Anthony Edwards, obviously, is the best athlete. And probably was overall the best player. Uh, but I think from a standpoint of looking at who are your best players, I think those two probably carved, them out, carved themselves out of place. I don't know that you can leave Jaron Jackson Jr. off the lineup just simply from a defensive standpoint if you can get some guys to come in and commit to, to playing in the Olympics next summer. But it's it's got to get back to where... There's you know, almost that training camp mentality that Team USA had a few years ago when you had guys like LeBron and Kobe and Melo and D-Wade, all of which in their prime, that were all about playing for Team USA. If you can get guys back to that point, um, I, think t- I think you'll see USA basketball really make a quick turnaround because there's the talent to do it. You just have to have the guys that want to get on board. <sighs> Yeah, I completely agree. I think one of the things that it looks like other countries
0: have but the United States doesn't is an approach to the team. I think you cannot skate by on thinking that the United States is more talented. Um, and like you said, Coach K didn't do that. There was an approach. And the approach was we did have the most talent, but there was they weren't going to coast through it. Um, and that definitely wasn't what it looked like when he was there and Kobe and LeBron and those guys were there in, in the early parts and the primes of their career. Um, The thing that I saw was Yes, one, Halliburton Halliburton looked like their best player Uh, Anthony Edwards looked really good Austin Reeves looked really good And you didn't see a change at all Um, We didn't see the the roster really change Halliburton stayed the same minutes Reeves was, you know The leading scorer, second leading scorer And he was still coming late off the bench Um, Jalen Brunson is a guy that didn't look like He contributed a ton It looked like he slowed the pace Yeah Um. I didn't see a lot coming from those guys. And the biggest issue, and we're going to talk about this, is the rebounding discrepancy. If I'm wrong, someone comment on our social media page and tell me. But I believe up until the bronze game, before we played Canada, Jaron Jackson Jr. had 20 total rebounds for the tournament. 20 rebounds? Yeah. That's a bit Kirk Goldsberry, um, who works for ESPN, was talking about the rebounding problem that we might have with the United States team. The top 20 rebounders in the NBA, I think there's like one American-born player in the top 20 rebounds. Jaron Jackson Jr. was way down that list in terms of the NBA. So the big issue was there's no value in rebounding, and we got dominated by that. Um, I think at one point that that stat came out and it became a problem. They had the best rebounding game of the tournament, but it wasn't there. There's not a balance. You can't win just with athleticism, and these other teams are proving that. Uh, you know, when you look at the Serbians or the Germans, they, they aren't a more athletic team. Even, even Canada, really. Uh, but we're getting out-skilled, and we're getting um, outdone in the little things. The other thing is the lack of young players that aren't there. Um, you were talking about, like, LeBron and Dwayne Wade and those guys in their prime. Those guys were there early on in their career, I have written here, where is Devin Booker? Where is Donovan Mitchell? And where's Trey Young? And if Trey Young wanted to play and they didn't invite him, um, where's Devin Booker? I, I feel like that's the guy that should be the leader right now. He's yeah. the guy that's coming up that they're comparing to Kobe and all of this nonsense. But to me, there aren't guys in the prime that were out there. There were some young guys. Austin Reeves, who did a fantastic job. No disrespect to Austin Reeves. He should have no business being on that team right now. There are three or four more shooting guards that should be on that team. I, I was just I was really surprised by that and really surprised
1: by who doesn't want to be out there. Yeah, and that's the frustrating part for me, I think, when it comes to USA Basketball and, and the FIBA World Championships, more so than the Olympics, because the Olympics obviously carry, you know, all the glitz, all the glamour, all the notoriety, uh, all the attention. And so you're going to pull your big name, you're going to pull your marquee players that want to be on the team for the Olympics. And it seems as if maybe um, after this tournament, some of your marquee players have already spoken up and said that they're going to commit themselves to play. But I'm just curious at what point does putting on a a, a Team USA uniform start to really mean a whole lot to some guys? Um, And it's not to take anything away from the guys on the team because if you look at Team Canada, if you look at, at Team Germany, uh, you know Dennis Schroeder in the NBA. He's a role player. A lot of those guys for Team Canada, outside of you know Shea Gilgis Alexander and you know RJ Barrett, they've got two or three guys that are that are go-to players on their individual NBA teams. But for the most part, their rosters are also constructed of guys who are role slash fringe NBA players. And if we look at the European teams, it's maybe one NBA guy. And a bunch of you know European players that play, um, you know EuroBasket, and so to think that Team USA should play as poorly as they did, I still think is is something disappointing, regardless of the of the tournament. Because in the end of the day, all of those guys are NBA players, and role player or not, I think you set your expectations higher. Um, but at some point, you have to either work to incentivize your best players playing or you've got to put something in place that says, if you want to play in the Olympics, you have to play in the FIBA world championships prior to the Olympics. And you make it, you basically make it a two tournament commitment. That way, you know, you're going to have some sort of, of continuity and consistency with your lineup.
0: Yeah. I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that's, what's going to bring us into the third quarter here, jumping right through halftime. Um, Let's talk about those upcoming 2024 Olympics that are uh, just around the corner. The news today is that LeBron James is verbally committed to playing. I'm going to start the clock for us here. Verbally committed to playing Team USA basketball. What do you think about him joining the team? What does that bring along? Uh, I mean, what do you want to see next summer when the lights are
1: really bright? Well, I, th- I think that's at least – Maybe it's not a big glimmer of hope, but it's at least a glimmer of hope for USA basketball um, in the sense that you have, you know, LeBron James is still, his name carries an immense amount of weight, um, and the NBA carries an, an immense amount of weight globally when it comes to the game of basketball, and regardless of him being in year five or him being in year 25, you know, I think if he wants to be on the floor and wants to be a member of your team, you let that guy play basketball. Uh, and he's also a guy that other guys will follow, which I think we're seeing based on the news that came out today. Uh, it seems like Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Anthony Davis, uh, Jason Tatum. It seems like there's a list of guys that have now kind of started to slowly commit themselves to playing next summer. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that they don't, they didn't like what they saw, you know, take place in the last couple of weeks. But I also would love to see these guys be more committed to the effort as far as the FIBA championships go, the world championships and things like that. Uh, But it's definitely a good sign. And you mentioned Devin Booker. I think he has to be on the team. You know, I think you're looking at a guy that is arguably the best two-guard in the NBA. And you can never have too much scoring. And I thought one thing that Team USA lacked uh, was talent at the wing positions. And so bringing in LeBron James, a, a Kevin Durant, a Devin Booker, being able to mix in a Steph Curry, a, a, you know, possibly maybe a De'Aaron Fox, at the point guard positions, uh, I think that really that changes things for Team USA next summer, and I'm I'm at least excited and looking forward to the product and the team that they can put on the floor.
0: Yeah, I think you nailed it with the LeBron discussion there. It's not necessarily that he's playing; it is important that he's playing, but there's also who does he bring, and then can he instill a desire to play on the team going forward? Yeah. I think that's what's really important here. Is there, it wasn't like there wasn't big names on this team. In terms of the casual fans, a casual basketball fan, I don't know would recognize anyone on the floor in this FIBA tournament for the United yeah. States. I mean, the biggest name was Anthony Edwards, and he was in the number one overall pick, and he did fantastic, but he's not a face that's super recognizable in the NBA by, like we say, just the casual fan yeah. that may turn on Center to, to see it. Um, I think what LeBron can do is hopefully bring that in and I hope he can give them an identity because that's what I again, like I said, they weren't in sync and I don't think there was an identity. Um, the players that I hope can carry that on are like Devin Booker, Donovan Mitchell, and Cade Cunningham. Um, those are the three guys I would really, really hope would join on and then carry it because those seem to be the the guards that are kind of the future of the, the league, it seems like. Uh, the other thing I think is just, it needs to be, this team needs to be constructed, not uh,
1: just assembled,
0: if that makes sense. Like, it's not oh, just, hey, we a have a thousand guys.
1: percent. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean.
0: Yeah, it's not like we just have enough guys now because this team was a lot of the same type of players. The two things we were genuinely missing were a real big man. And That doesn't mean we play out of the post, but the rebounding numbers were staggering. And in the Olympics next year, there are going to be some big men that are a problem. Jokic will be be with the Serbian team. Uh, Embiid is, I guess, legally now allowed to play with the French team because he got... Um, he has citizenship yeah, you and, <laughs> he and Gobert and Wimbenyama on that team um, which will be the, the tallest roster probably ever um, you've got Carl uh, Anthony Towns who was playing and DeAndre Ayton with that uh, Bahamas team I think they were both on that Bahamas team Carl uh, Anthony Towns was yeah. um, and then the Germans who were you know a couple of seven-footers out there with Wagner and um, some of the other bigs that they had. So the, the teams that were there in the championship and competing were, were big teams. Uh, the Canadians as well had some size. I think that's something that we've really got to get into is, is there a big guy? Because there's always been one that has, um, you know, been able to push the pace, but also... Uh, be able to protect the rim and, and dominate. You know, Dwight Howard for a few years was, was that guy. And then in the 90s, when we were really dominant, there was just a slew of big men that we had, whether it was Dream Team 1 or 2. Um, that's something that's missing for me. And the biggest issue is shooting, and that was the one I think people weren't talking about enough. There were games where we'd hit two or three three-pointers as as a team for the United States yeah. and have a very low percentage. Or we'd hit a few, but it was a crazy low percentage. Um, there weren't guys that would hit a handful. And when you watch some of these international teams, especially in Europe, those guys are hitting everything. That Slovenian team is Luca and four guys that hit 50% of their three-pointers. <laughs> the Germans, everyone could shoot. The Serbians, everyone could shoot. Um, some of these teams of guys that you know, you would never expect to see out there, the Spanish team was absolutely shooting the lights out when you watched them. Uh, the Spanish team was the team I really enjoyed uh, watching, um, especially because you had that... Uh, uh, Juanjo Hernan Gomez who played Bo Cruz in that Adam yeah. movie. Uh, that was fun to watch him out there. Um, and that team shot the lights out with him and Alex Sabrinas. Like there, there's a lot of skilled size and skilled shooting in the United States had athleticism and that was pretty much it. Yeah. Anthony Edwards was the best athlete on the floor and at times it was very impressive, but we did not have a guy that was a knockdown shooter. Um, which hopefully that's what Curry brings. And we did not have a guy that really protected and really grabbed the board and started, started the brick. Um, so to me, I want to see a construction, not necessarily a, an assembling of a team.
1: Yeah, and I would like to see it get back to a national pride standpoint, I think. And we look at these other rosters around the world that are constructed, and, and you know, Canada to me sticks out greatly. Uh, Germany sticks out greatly to me, uh, given how well they played in this tournament. But you have guys, NBA players, that when it comes time for a, a national, global tournament, they live for the moment to play for their national team. And I think we've got to get back to a point circa 2008 to 2012, even 2016, when it was cool to play for Team USA. And I think right now we're kind of in a point where we're coasting again. With our international stuff, as far as our Olympic team, our FIBA teams, I think we're coasting, and we're now kind of in a point of, of just being content with letting our best players set these tournaments out. And I think number one, we've got to reward the guys that want to continue to play. That's why I think, you know, Anthony Edwards and Tyrese Halliburton, given how well they played, definitely deserve a spot on next year's team. Uh, but it, it does. It definitely. It's going to take guys like LeBron, Durant, and. You know, obviously they're veterans, but other guys like Booker, De'Aaron Fox, maybe a Damian Lillard that come out and they make it cool to play for Team USA again. And, you know, whether it's a Jason Tatum, a Trey Young that you alluded to, you know, why he wasn't on the roster, I don't know. Uh, but guys like that, that that can carry the torch from guys like LeBron, Steph, and KD, we need to have that next generation of, of right now – some of the best in the league that want to that want to take that and and turn it over into something awesome again.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that, and I think um, that's what I'm hoping to say at 2024. And it, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that we might see it um, heading into the last quarter um, as we start the clock. Uh, fourth quarter. Let's shift away from some some bad basketball news and talk uh, some exciting and fun basketball news. Uh, the NBA schedule was released. Um, within our hiatus, yeah. and I was curious, what games stood out to you as some exciting early games in the season that you can't wait to see? I've got three games that have really stood out um, in terms of what I'm excited to watch, uh, and there's uh, going to be a little bit of a theme with mine. Okay, uh, are there are there some uh, some games that you're really excited when you saw the uh, when you saw the schedule get released?
1: Well, I always love the Christmas Day stuff, hundred uh, uh, pretty- percent, but. For me, I, I, I love opening day. It's uh, the the opening day for basketball is like the opening day for baseball. It's just yeah. something that you look forward to, and once it starts, like it just keeps rolling, and every day is awesome. Uh, this is kind of that lull for me, um, as far as in the sports world goes. I'm I'm thrilled that football has is back because now we've got Monday night, Thursday night. You know, we got college on Saturday, and then we got our our Sunday. So my week is a little bit more easily occupied. Uh, but once the NBA season starts, we've got stuff every single night, and I think the way that this NBA season is going to play out with the, obviously your 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 Nuggets, your Heat, the Celtics, uh, you know, I think your your top tier teams are obviously going to be very enjoyable to watch. They're going to be fun. There's a lot of storylines there, but I look at some of the potential under underdogs of the season is being really fun to watch. And by that, I mean I think that maybe Miami plays with a chip on its shoulder again. Uh, I cannot wait to see what Oklahoma City does this year. Uh, If Anthony Edwards becomes the player that he was on Team USA for Minnesota night in, night out, that's going to be an absolute blast. Uh, But I'm looking at night one. The Nuggets play the Lakers and the Suns play the Warriors. You talk about a good way to kick off the year. Uh, You know, you've got one of the best front court matchups in the NBA with the Nuggets and the Lakers and probably one of, if not the best back court matchup with the Suns and the Warriors. So the NBA season starts off guns blazing and I can't wait to see it happen. What do you got?
0: Yeah, and so some new faces on those teams as well, um, with, with Golden State bringing in Chris Paul and Phoenix bringing in Bradley Beal. That just kind of adds to the excitement when you've yeah. got some new faces. But I have that opening night one as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to Lakers Nuggets. Uh, there's going to be a, a Nuggets thing. I don't know if I've mentioned on this podcast before, but I'm a big Nikola Jokic fan. I don't know if I've ever said that on here. That's TV.
1: news. That's like, can, I, yeah. can I toot the horn? Because I don't think anyone knows that.
0: No, I don't think that's been said on here, um, but I'm looking forward to that matchup. Uh, watching the defending champs come back—not um, necessarily one particular game—but you talked about a young team in Oklahoma City. I'm really looking forward to seeing, uh, looking forward to seeing what the Detroit Pistons can do. Yeah, um, they are really young. We have, everybody's coming back healthy. I just, I just have this feeling that they're uh, going to be exciting. Uh, the other game is actually another Nuggets game. Shocker, January 27th. Is a Sixers Nuggets matchup. And that's really exciting because there is this constant Embiid and Jokic narrative. And it, late in the season last year, uh, Embiid did not play in the Nuggets Sixers game. And I'm just excited to watch those two guys yeah. match up because it's just a battle of Titans between those two. And the other one I have is a Christmas Day game. And um, like you, I don't think it gets more fun than the Christmas Day basketball game. No. There's always just a good, fun performance. Um, and it's just—I just—I won't move the whole day. I will watch every one of those Christmas Day games if given the
1: opportunity. I just get fat and happy on Christmas. That's all. That's the only thing that happens. There's a lot of basketball. There's a lot of food.
0: Absolutely, it's it's nonstop. I mean, it it comes on, and I I I want to watch every single second of it. Um, the Mavericks and Suns matchup on Christmas Day just seems like a game where Luca has. Fifty or Kevin Durant and Devin Booker lighting yeah. up like it just seems like a game that's building to a, a very exciting you know one of those historic Christmas Day games that they talk about for a long time. Um, I don't think we've really had one of those in quite some time. We've had some good head-to-head matchups, but I want to see somebody put up a you know a, a big number there. So I'm really looking forward to those Christmas Day games. Uh, just because man, there's some new faces on these teams that make these matchups just big storylines. Yeah. It's not necessarily – I mean, the NBA right now is wide open because there's so much talent. But these teams are, I don't know, just exciting to see because of the rearrangement. The team we haven't talked about, and I'm curious to know what they look like in response, and I don't have any of their games, is the response of what the Milwaukee Bucks look like because yeah. they have not been in the conversation all offseason, and they were the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. And I was a Giannis injury away from there not being a heat run. Right. Um, so I'm curious to know what that will look like. I'm very excited to see what we get out of um, these early season new face matchups. But uh, I don't know; those three games stood out to me as those those headliners that I'm anxious for.
1: Yeah, I think that at least looking outside in, and obviously we're still, you know, a month and a half away from from NBA basketball and the season starting. But I think we're looking at what may be arguably the most entertaining NBA season we've seen in a long time and I mean that from a competition standpoint and potentially from a records standpoint as far as there not being you know one team that wins like 58 to 65 games I think we may see a bunch of teams that win 48 to 50 I'm not sure that there's going to be one team outside of maybe Denver that just absolutely leapfrogs the NBA um you know, I think there's a lot of youth. I think there's, for the first time in several years, I think talent is very evenly distributed. And it seems like each team has some very young talent that's ready to basically kind of make their presence known. And that, to me, is going to be a whole lot of fun to watch. Uh, one interesting fact, I was looking at the Pacers schedule, just from a hometown standpoint. Uh, they have six uh, situations this season on their schedule, where they play the same team on back-to-back nights. Wow, that which is, is I didn't brilliant. I didn't realize that the NBA did that, but it I think that's the most I've ever seen as far as you know, you play Orlando on a Tuesday, you turn it right around, you play Orlando on Wednesday, but they do the home and home type deal six times this year, uh, and then something else that you and I haven't mentioned yet is the new in-season tournament, which we can get into. At a later date, but running for running for a full calendar month is the new 2023 to 2024 NBA in-season tournament starts on November the 3rd and runs through December the 9th. And that could, I think, obviously bring some new light to the season, Um, but I think you may see some coming out parties in that early season tournament, too.
0: I agree, and I think that's where we'll see some of the young guys really step up and do something. I could see a younger team winning that um, early on in the season. Um, I think we'll see the young teams look really good, especially in those back-to-backs, because of load management and some teams that are, you know, managing the load for some of these guys yeah. not being super excited about the Commissioner's Cup. But I could see a young team like Oklahoma City, you know, coming in and and, and stealing that, or, or you know a uh, you know a team like. Maybe, I wouldn't say Detroit's ready for that necessarily, but I could see OKC or uh, you know maybe that Houston Rockets team that's got some yeah. veterans and, and youth on them coming in there and, and, and sneaking it if uh, you know that, that seems to be the case. But that's definitely one that I guess we, we kind of missed out on early on in the conversation was that in-season tournament, but I know we'll get to that later on. Um, so that's our final buzzer. We're going to take a quick break and come back with our uh, final discussion. Stick around, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. And we're talking about our, um, well, we're getting into our final discussion here. And we briefly talked about. When we talked about. you say basketball. Our experts is. Is there a rebounding problem with United States basketball? In the NBA that are leading in rebounding. We had one American player in the top 20 in terms of a rebounder. So that kind of led to the discussion between Derek and I of um, who were some of the greatest rebounders we've ever seen um, and and what made those guys so special? What were those numbers like? Um, and not just those rebounding bigs, but rebounding at each position. So the question that um, I'm posing you, Derek, is who were some of the best rebounders at every position that you've ever seen or that the game's ever seen? And we'll go maybe three per position here. So yeah, before we start, do you have any comments on the, the rebounding problem that we're addressing? The Team USA really struggled in that, and not only that, just
1: in the NBA, we're seeing American players lower and lower on the on the rebounding charts. Well, you and I have, have talked about this probably, I don't know, probably a handful of times, I would say, as far as what the rebounding looks like in the NBA, what the rebounding looks like in college, how it looks internationally, the emphasis on rebounding or in some cases, the lack thereof, the emphasis on rebounding. Uh, And I think you and I have both found it interesting in the last couple of years, especially getting into Russell Westbrook's run of triple-doubles and kind of his just unreal, not only scoring, but his unreal assist and rebounding rate that he was putting together there in OKC. Uh, They're... Their entire defensive scheme and the way that they taught their guys to block out was geared toward Russell Westbrook getting the defensive rebound so that they could easily transition into their fast-paced transition offense. And I think that there, we, we've seen a little bit of a trickle down in that to every other team in the NBA maybe. Uh, and I think we've even seen it from your and I's standpoint in the high school game I don't think that there's an emphasis on rebounding as much as there used to be. Uh, I know this is gonna make this is gonna age me, um, but going back into 2002 to 2005, you know, my high school team led the state in rebounding two years of my four in high school, uh, and we were by no means a big team. I think we topped out at about six six, had a couple of guys that were six four, maybe six two. Uh, But a large part of that came from the way we were coached and the fact that rebounding was a legitimate emphasis every single day. And the physicality part of the game was something that was coached and encouraged. And I think looking at at the NBA, looking at college, there's a certain amount of the physical aspect and the physicality of the game that maybe has been taken out a little bit. I think the game's a lot more finesse than it used to be. Um, If you watch a college game, if you watch an NBA game, there's a lot of similarities in the sense that you don't see five guys go find a body very often. Uh, You know, the shot goes up, and if you watch players, if you just simply watch their heads, their heads don't go find a player. Their heads go find the rim, they watch the ball, and then when the ball comes off, you see ten guys react to the ball. Um, And I think that that's that's just something that simply has sort of ingrained itself, I think, in basketball in a lot of ways, and I think that that's probably part of what carried over into Team USA and some of their their serious rebounding issues that they had on the international stage because other countries emphasize it. Um, Other countries definitely play an offensive game that looks very American um, with ball movement and the ability to shoot the basketball from five different positions, but there's an emphasis on simply completing a defensive play getting a defensive rebound, and then quickly pushing to the other end. Uh, so I, I don't know if it's going to be something that that sticks or if you're going to see the game in the in America slowly trend back to guys getting a little bit more physical when a shot goes up, uh, you know, putting a body on somebody and maintaining the paint, clearing guys out and going to get the rebound, and then throwing the outlet pass. I'm not real sure what it's going to look like. Uh, but I'm with you in the conversations we've had. Something is going to have to change inside, whether it's the NBA or or college, wherever it needs to start. Um, but something's going to have to change to to kind of reiterate how important defensive rebounding is and how important blocking out is.
0: Yeah, um I looked up an Adolph Rupp quote that I had heard before, and I, I uh, wrote it down here for, for this episode. Uh, he who controleth the backboard controleth the game. Um, and that's, uh, that's Rupp, and, and that's you know an age quote. However, the game, especially the NBA, has become so electrifying in terms of the offense that we want to get a quick shot. And I think because the focus is the offensive transition, we've really gotten away from yeah. the rebound. There's one guy, like you said, who's designated, and then, there's, you know, four other guys who care about the offensive break. And I think that that's something that really needs to change so that we can compete at an international level or that, you know, there's not an aspect of the game that's getting lost. And it doesn't seem like it's getting lost around the world. It seems like it's getting lost um, here. Um, And, you know, you see those teams that are perennially in the, you know, Final Four competing in uh, the NCAA tournament, uh, you know, Michigan State's one that they talked about is always there, always there, and that's their biggest emphasis is the rebound. And I, yeah. I think that when you do control the rebounds, you are a team that can really dictate the tempo and, and dictate the outcome of a game. Um, so with that being said, let's talk about those all-time great rebounders, um, those guys that have controlled the backboards um, from every position. We're going to go through all five positions and talk. Um, I think we discussed three guys per position. Does that sound good to
1: you? Yeah, sounds good.
0: All right, so we're going to go through each position and talk about those all-time great rebounders. Do we want to start with the little guys or the big guys that really controlled the boards. We're going to leave them for the end. Hey,
1: you tell me, and I'll join the party wherever you want.
0: All right, let's start with the small guys and work up to those real dominant rebounders. Gotcha. Let's talk point guard positions. Um, who, we, who have you, you know, looked up the numbers for? You watched on television, grew up watching as those guys that really controlled the rebounds um, as a as a point guard
1: and a floor general. I'm going to start, I know we talked about three guys per position, but I'm going to start with my honorable mention. Um, And I'm going to go honorable mention point guard position Mark Jackson of of the St. John's University, of the New York Knickerbockers, of the L.A. Clippers, Denver Nuggets, but most well known for his stint as an Indiana Pacer um, during the heyday of the Pacers in the early mid-90s. Uh, late 90s, early 2000s, he was a borderline/slash fringe triple-double waiting to happen. Uh, obviously, the Pacers were led by Reggie Miller, um, but I think you got you have to factor in Mark Jackson as a cornerstone of of that Pacers run and those Pacers teams with the guys that they had, and only being six three. Um, was a guy that was going to go out as a point guard and get you eight to nine rebounds a night in a lot of occasions. And for me, um, not the most athletic guy in the world. Obviously he kind of, you know, I think they had the Mark Jackson rule now where you're only allowed to back somebody down for three seconds because he would start his back down pat on the other side of half court and work you to the elbow. Um, but that's, that's where my honorable mention starts, and I think you and I probably have a similar rundown here for point guards. Uh, but Jason Kidd, I think, knocks the rebounding out of the park for point guards um, and his ability uh, to not only be a rebounder but a facilitator, his passing. And he was, again, to kind of echo Mark Jackson, uh, was a walking triple-double most nights. And, you know, there was a lot accounted for him on the defensive end because he was a guy that was going to get you – You know, two to three steals a night, but he was also going to pull down nine or ten rebounds a night and do his fair share of scoring, and obviously we know he's most prolific with his ability to pass the basketball. Um, But Jason Kidd goes at number one for me. Um, And then I've got Russell Westbrook and Oscar Robertson coming in as my other two guards there from the point guard position.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to quickly mention, My honorable mention, and and it's not that he's being left out, but more like an honorary pick here. He's not uh, in the top among the guard rebounders anymore like he was years ago, but um, Magic Johnson, I think, is the guy that really got that started as the rebound, the big guard, the rebounder who started the break. Yeah. Um, So I'd be remiss if we didn't mention Magic Johnson. Um, But I had the same big three, and I kind of want to. throw some numbers out here so jason kidd is the all-time leading rebounder among point guards and he finished his crew with 8725 rebounds 6.3 a game the big o and russell westbrook are kind of mirrors of each other in terms of this uh the big o was seven and a half rebounds a game and westbrook was 7.3 uh that's that's a big number for point guards i know those are both bigger guards and then Russell Westbrook currently sits at 7,964 and the Big O finished with uh, 7,800. Uh, that's, you know, you're talking around 8,000 rebounds as a point guard is very, very impressive.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um,
0: and I know we're talking, we're talking about some of the all-time greats here, so it's not like we're, we're shocked by this, but um, the benefit to the big point guard is the ability to rebound and, um, you know, lead the break. And those three guys are, you know, in the... Conversation of the best triple double guys, which maybe yeah. something we talk about at some point later on in another episode. But I've got those three guys: kid being the all time leader, and then Westbrook and Big O being those you know all time triple double guys. Are you know the best point? I mean, those are the three guys that come to mind all the time when I uh, when I think of rebounding point guards.
1: Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I mean, especially when we look at, at what those guys were able to do at their size. You know, yeah, when we think guys. about the modern point guard. You know, we look at guys that are, you know, 6'5 all the way up to, you know, 6'9 to 6'10, thinking about guys like Ben Simmons who can play the point guard and handle the ball a little bit. You know, Jay Kidd, 6'3, 6'4, Westbrook, probably, what, 6'4, 6'5 maybe? I mean, we're looking at a lineup there of guys on our list that are all, all 6'5 and under. And not only were great rebounders at their position, but were great rebounders. Period. Period. Yeah, period. End of of story. Like, great period, rebounder, period. Uh, Absolutely. The big L in that conversation
0: for sure. I mean, he's up there with any small forward or power forward. Yeah. Um, So I want to jump to the shooting guard position and kind of preface it with, this was the weirdest position to look at rebounding-wise. It is not a position that is known for great rebounders and there aren't any staggering standout numbers or a player that jumps off the chart. I mean we talk about rebounding guards, Jason Kidd and Oscar Robertson are guys that come to every basketball fan's mind. This is a weird one. Um, and it was not hard to pick because of the numbers, but really I would say not that enjoyable to look at, just because there aren't a lot of shooting guards that are just known for, you know, being those dominant rebounders.
1: Yeah, they don't um, they don't crash the boards too hard.
0: No, it doesn't seem like that's the, yeah, that's the <laughs> position that does that. Um, so uh, I have a couple of big names and then uh, kind of a surprise one here. So I'm curious, who do you have on your list for uh, greatest shooting guard rebounders based okay. on numbers or just what you're impressed well, by? Well, this
1: is probably going to irritate a few people, but the honorable mention for me is Michael Jordan. Uh, yeah. You know, averaged, I think, just a little bit under six and a half rebounds per game for his career. So yeah. the guys that I've got above him averaged... I think I've got two guys that were just a touch above. I've got one guy that was definitely below, uh, but just looking at how the other guy rebounded the ball, i got Jordan as my honorable mention, and then the three shooting guards I have by position, Clyde Drexler, uh, who probably when you think about shooting guards again, you don't think about two guards and rebounding necessarily going hand-in-hand there, uh, but was one of the great rebounding two guards in NBA history. Uh, I've got Kobe as one of my guys, and if you look at uh, two-guard rebounding historically, Kobe's number one, Drexler I think is number two, Uh, Jordan I believe is number three, even though he's honorable mention, Uh, but looking at somebody who's more our time frame as far as NBA players, players, uh, uh, my third is Dwayne Waite. And I look at that as much as anything from basically looking at Prime D. Wade, you know, starting in like that 04 05 season to them winning the championship in 06, even carrying his way through, uh, you know, the Heatles era with LeBron and Chris Bosch. The way he was able to control the boards as a two guard, um, I really, and again, he's. I think Dwayne Wade is 6'4 on a good day. Um, so even being smaller than some of the point guards that we listed, uh, I feel like he rebounded much bigger than what he was. And really for that reason, I put him on the list.
0: Yeah, I, um, Dwayne Wade was one that was close for me, and he was, um, I wouldn't necessarily remember my honorable mentions, but he was one that I looked at just because there was a prime where he was a great rebounder. And I think there was such a long tail end of his career that some of his numbers kind of trail off. Um, but he was still so fun to watch at that time I have Clyde and Kobe as well Kobe is listed as the, the all time um, leading rebounder from that position I mean that's a very long career and obviously playing a lot of games you are going to grab a lot Clyde Drexler at two averaged about one rebound more than him Yeah, and they're both in the high six thousands uh, I have another one here and I threw this on here and I, I, I told you beforehand and it kind of made us laugh but I don't think it's laughable here um, at significantly less games um, but a high amount of minutes has played. The great, the great Utah Jazz coach and former Chicago Bulls player, Jerry Sloan, finished his career with just over 5,000 rebounds, but averaged seven and a half rebounds a game as a shooting guard and not a really big one, I think is really impressive. And I know some of the older guys, and we can talk about this a little, have more rebounds Per game, just because there were a lot more shots and not as efficient, and or I mean, you know, uh, the physical percentage wasn't as valued as much right. as it is now. But still, as a shooting guard in an era with a lot of more dominant bigs who were stealing a lot of yeah. rebounds, you guard grabbing seven and a half rebounds is, is super impressive. And just want to throw out um, former player at, at University of Evansville. So a little who's your connection to yeah. Jerry Sloan? So. Uh, Seven and a half rebounds a game is nothing to like turn your nose up at, and I think that's impressive
1: enough to put him on my top three. No, I think you know seven and a half rebounds is, is enough for anybody's career, you know, let alone a two guard and you know a two guard that was playing back in the '70s in Jerry Sloan. Uh, certainly, when pace was emphasized over anything. And yeah. I think it was a matter of you and I have both seen clips and videos from games back in that time era. And there wasn't a whole lot of offense necessarily being ran. It was very much first guy touch it. If you're open, let her fly. Uh, so maybe, the like you said, the, the quality of the game may not have been there. Uh, but still, as a, as a two guard in any era, to go and get seven and a half rebounds a game, especially back in that day when the big men dominated the NBA, um, to me says a lot about his his willingness to go find the glass and go find the basketball.
0: Yeah, I think it's awesome to look at it. And like you said, Yeah, it's, it's, it's a different type of game. The shot quality at times maybe was different um, and just the different types of shots being taken then, not to devalue the game then, because I think all eras are, are, are fun and exciting and enjoyable in their own way. But, um, not scoffing at that error at all i'm, I'm not impressed by him no um we're gonna move our way towards the big man with some really staggering rebounding numbers um headed our direction we're gonna look at the small forward position the three spot on the floor with some big guys that put up some really big rebounding numbers in their career and uh, were, were known for their ability to clean the glass um i'm gonna let you lead off with this one who are some guys that you felt looking at their numbers, looking back at their career, having watched Some of them were small forwards that
1: clean the glass. Well, this one kind of pained me a whole lot to not put on my my list. But this is my honorable mention for the four. Okay. And I and I group my forwards. I just put six forwards. So I'm going to okay. give you three guys. We'll go to power forwards. I'll give you three guys. Uh, my honorable mentions: Larry Bird. Okay. I I was borderline and fringe ready to put him on, uh, yeah, on the main list here, but had eight thousand nine hundred and seventy four rebounds for his career. That's average of ten per game. Uh, you know, Bird goes out, almost averages a triple double for his career, uh, and I think at the time as a small forward, you know, he's six nine, borderline six ten is obviously a great all-time rebounder for his position. Uh, So he becomes my honorable mention. Other guys I'm going to throw out here, uh, and I'm going to save. I've got two, I feel like, that are kind of wild cards, maybe flyers that you're not going to see coming. Uh, Okay. But the first I'm going to throw out, you and I have talked about probably three to four times on this podcast in various... Um, capacities whether it be high school, whether it be college whether it be NBA and for me the first one I want to throw out is George McGinnis oh yeah, as an all-time great rebounder from the forward position um, I think we would be severely missing out if if we didn't mention George McGinnis and yeah um, coming out of Indi- coming out of Indiana. Uh, has a long-standing career, uh, not only in the NBA, but in the ABA, playing for the Pacers. Uh, averages well over double figures in rebounds for his career. Um, his career high is 12.2 rebounds per game. Uh, left Indiana after only a year. And I believe at the time, before he left, had the re- or maybe had the record for... Rebounds in a season at IU, maybe. Uh, but to me, when we think about rebounding, I've got to think about George McGinnis. And uh, second.
0: So I want to throw in a quick George McGinnis stat here. When he please. played in the Indiana Kentucky All Star game coming out of high school, um, there was a little bit of overrated talks, and he threw down a, uh, I believe, 53 point. 50, 33 rebound game. He had 50 points and over 30 rebounds in the Indiana-Kentucky All-Star game. Um, the exact number will—I'll have to look up here in a second—but I know it's 50-30. Um, so 30 boards in an high school All-Star game. I know how big he was, but that's still just <laughs>
1: ridiculous. That was back when coaches didn't sit guys in the All-Star game. You just played. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whoever the whoever the coach was of that All-Star game was trying to make a point. Like, you know what? I know we've got, like, 11 other guys sitting over here, but, George, you want to play the whole night? Yeah, we're just going to throw it to big George and let it roll. Yeah. Uh, so, honorable mention, Bird, McGinnis, uh, Kevin Garnett from a from a forward position, all-time great rebounder, uh, probably to a certain degree underrated career because of his years he spent in Minnesota. Uh, and to me, he, he – Built what Minnesota ever was going to be. Um, if yeah. if Minnesota doesn't have Kevin doesn't have Kevin Garnett, you've got to wonder if that franchise ever becomes relevant. Um, yeah. And then third one for me on the I guess we'll call it my small forward list. Um, Carl Malone. Oh. And yeah. I think you got to throw the mailman on there and. Again, just an all-time great rebounder. I think a little bit like Kobe when we talked about just simply the number of years played. Obviously, you're going to rack up not only points, but also rebounds and, and, and stats in general. Uh, you know, But from a forward position, Carl Malone is an all-time great, and not yep. only score, but all-time great rebounder. And that was back when the game was physical. There was an emphasis on putting a body on somebody, crashing the glass. And we look at what he was able to do from a rebounding standpoint against... You know, some of the most physical players we've ever seen play the game. Yeah. And so absolutely. I I couldn't leave him off my list.
0: No, I think it's a fantastic pick. Um, when I look at my small forwards, I actually have Larry Bird on my list. Um, okay. At just over 10 rebounds a game for his career. We missed a very young age Larry Bird, and we missed – and he obviously – his career ended um, with some injuries. So we got a brief – you know stint of Larry Bird and not everything. I feel like we could have seen. I feel like there's a there's some situations where he comes in the league a little earlier and he's healthy and we see some really, I mean, really, you know, a longer career. Um, but to average over ten and be the guy they talk about, like oh, can't jump and all that stuff, is right? Super impressive. I mean, he was a great rebounder, well over eight thousand for his or just over eight thousand for his career. Um, so I have a standout pick and then kind of a surprise one here. So I have Sean Marion. Okay. Um, the Matrix.
1: Um, Pride United of Vincennes University.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm throwing in, in some guys that, you know, <laughs> some, with, some, with some Hoosier background. Um, Sean Marion at uh, 8.1 rebounds for his career. So over 8, he's not, you know, the most tremendously big forward. He's not like a guy that stands out in terms of his size. Right. Um, obviously a ridiculous athlete and one of the most amazing jump shots of all time. Yeah, he
1: was the Matrix. Uh, but he was a um,
0: but he had over seven thousand rebounds. And a guy again, like, wasn't huge and played on some great teams. Um, those Suns teams with Steve Nash, were really fun. I think there's a lot of rebounds to be had there because, like we said, the emphasis was not defense and rebounding on those teams. Right. It was a lot, of, a lot of shots really quickly. Um, so I have Sean Marion there just because I remember him being super impressive in that. I remember him being a defender and rebounder on great teams. He was in Miami for a little bit. He was on those great Phoenix teams, and that. That great Dirk Nowitzki Dallas run. He was on that team. and Was a great rebounder, defender on an amazing defensive team. And then my other small forward, and I, I might be mentioning him later on too. I don't know. Is Elgin Baylor, okay. and he's one that I you know I gave you before the show. I said, hey, I'll give you three guesses who's the all-time leading rebounder as a small forward. Not only is he the all-time leading rebounder, it's by about three thousand rebounds.
1: Yeah, when you told me that, I was shocked.
0: Yeah, LeBron is second in, like, the 8,000 range. And not mm-hmm. to take away from LeBron, he's a tremendous rebounder, but the length of career is something that I think uh, I held against some players.
1: Okay. Uh, and,
0: and, you know, we talk about LeBron and Michael Jordan a lot, and those are guys that were on the list. But I think, yes, they did get a lot of rebounds, but they're someone I think you and I were kind of like, yeah, that's not really the discussion we're having. Yeah. Um, but Elgin Baylor at thirteen and a half rebounds, the first really above the rim player in the NBA, and to grab eleven thousand, he almost has eleven thousand five hundred rebounds. Yeah, that's unbelievable as a small forward. I mean, as a, a guy that's maybe like six foot nine. And again, the league was different. The shot quality was different. There was a lot more rebounds to be had. The pace was super fast. I get that. It's still. It's still impressive I, you know I don't I know the era is a factor but I still think we have to recognize when someone does something impressive and 13 and a half a game and 3,000 more rebounds than any other small forward I mean, like no one's come no small forward has ever come close yeah even the LeBrons and the birds and the Scotty Pippins and those guys that we talk about in small forward dr. J nobody's come close to that yeah That's just really to me so I've got eligibility of the small forward to oh, put a, and, uh, we're going yeah, to head towards gonna, uh, the here to wrap up. Let's uh, continue the forward list there.
1: All right, I'm going to go um, – I'm probably going to go kind of just chalk here, but Tim Duncan yeah, is going to be absolutely. my first – and you may very well have very similar decisions here um, at your power forward spot too. But, but Tim Duncan for me, and a little bit of this is longevity, um, but where he <laughs> ranks on the all-time rebounding list uh, – where he ranks as far as his career on most major statistical categories uh, for a power forward, I don't think that we can put this list together and not mention Tim Duncan. Uh, So that's where I want to start. And then second on my power forward list is Dennis Rodman. And, you know, again, we can think about a guy who has a fair amount of career longevity, um, but what he was able to do in his time in Detroit, how he established himself—you know, where Dennis Rodman came from, his backstory—to um, me is something that's special. And once he was in the league, what he was able to do—really coming out of nowhere and carving out not only not only a roster spot in the NBA, but carving out what was one of the all-time great defensive. All time great rebounding, all time great effort players in the NBA. um, To me, speaks volumes about this guy. And you and I were lucky, probably, to be old enough to see some of Dennis Rodman. Um, You know, obviously, me being a little bit older, I saw some of the the more prime Dennis Rodman. Uh, But what he was willing to do uh, to simply secure a possession for his team. Um, to me, spoke volumes. Uh, you know, was willing to dive three rows into the crowd if he needed to. Some of that maybe was for show. Uh, but also listening to to him talk on The Last Dance and that episode, yeah. getting into them asking basically what he was doing during pregame warmups and what he would do when he was watching film. And... Maybe it, it may have appeared to the common person that he was being lazy because he didn't always warm up, like, quote-unquote, with the team. But in his, in his conversation, in his interview, he brought a whole lot to light in the sense that he was watching the guys take jump shots and he was watching the rotation of the basketball that would then give him a better advantage to know where the ball was going to bounce off the rim.
0: That was amazing to watch. And, and he's a nutcase, but that was amazing yeah, to watch. Yeah, I
1: mean, and just simply for those reasons alone, that he was willing to study the rotations of the basketball from a player, whether it be in warm-ups or whether it be on film, um, to, better put, to, to put himself in a better position to secure a rebound, he has to be on the list. Uh, Absolutely. And not only that, but being an integral part of the Detroit Pistons run, uh, and then being obviously a, a mainstay in the Chicago Bulls, you know, and their second Pete and what he was able to do with Pippen and Jordan, uh, to me to me puts him on the list. And uh, I don't think you can have a, re- a a conversation about rebounding without mentioning Dennis Rodman.
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, agreed for sure.
1: Uh, do you have all your power forwards listed there? Oh, I'm going to give you one more because that was two. So okay. I got one more, and it's a little bit of a surprise, But there's Indiana flair to it to kind of keep the consistency here. Uh, But my Uh, last power forward is Walt Bellamy.
0: Oh, I was hoping that you'd throw him in there because I don't have him. That's great.
1: Last member of my roster is Walt Bellamy. Pride of Indiana University. He's originally from North Carolina, so not an Indiana kid at all. Uh, We won't hold it against him. No, came to Indiana in 1957. uh, And it says that the main reason why he went to IU Um, In a large part was because of Bill Garrett. Um, Bill Bill Garrett being the first African-American to play in the Big Ten. And obviously at the time, Indiana was one of the premier basketball schools. They were recruiting Walt Bellamy. And the fact that Indiana was willing to not only recruit but offer scholarships to African-Americans was one of the big draws for him to come to Indiana. Um, He leaves Indiana holding still Four records in rebounding. Um, he has the record for most rebounds in a season at 649. He has the most. He has the record for most rebounds in a game at 33, and has the most double doubles in a season at 59, or in a career at 59. Those are incredible numbers. And mention he did that in three years, because again, came in at the time when freshmen were not allowed to play. Um, graduated from IU in 1961. Was Indiana University's first number one overall draft pick selected by the Chicago Packers? That's how far that goes back. Um, I
0: think I have a Chicago Packers, Packers jersey. Well, I think
1: it. every everyone does, Cam. You can find them at your local convenience store. Uh, went on to have a 14 year NBA career. He's in the Hall of Fame, is in the Indiana University Hall of Fame, obviously, uh, and was the Rookie of the Year selection in 1962.
0: Uh, I, I'm so glad you have
1: him on the list. <laughs> and still was able to secure over 14,000 rebounds in the NBA.
0: That is incredible. Uh, I'm so glad that you, you put him down there. Um, I, I, I looked at him and then didn't have him on my list, and I thought I'm, I, I, I was banking on you having him on there. So I'm glad you did. Um, look at my passport list. I have Robin as well. Um, but I, I'm going to talk about three other guys since we had the other great Rodman breakdown and discussion. I mean, he's on honorable mentions. I'm going to throw him in now since, since you mentioned Rodman. Uh, I'm going to throw Charles Barkley. They referred to him as the... Ah, he, was uh,
1: so, he was almost on my list.
0: Uh, I mean, Barkley's the round man to rebound. Um, he's just... At the time for a guy that small to lead the league in rebounding, he has, he still has offensive rebounding records like a leading, uh, the most offensive rebounds in a game, the most offensive rebounds in a half, at a guy that's like six foot four. Um, yeah, not a huge, not not necessarily six four is not. Is shorter in NBA standards. Let alone he played the power forward position, and he's averaging like twelve. Reb- I think 11.7, 12 rebounds a game for your career. And you're six foot four po- uh, power forward. It's unbelievable. Um, I think he's not talked about in the discussion enough. There's a lot of Rodman talk. Barkley was just as good, and his his was borderline sheer will, man. I mean, you, I mean, I didn't get to see prime Barkley. I caught maybe the end, but those those highlights of him in his prime, he is just ripping stuff off the rim. Yeah. Um. So I have Barkley. I have two oldies but goodies, okay? So a guy we mentioned, uh, um, a guy I, I talked about a few episodes ago in one of our college discussions, I have Bob Pettit. Okay. Bob Pettit is second all-time in power forward rebounding. Um, he averaged just over 16 rebounds a game. Okay. He's near 13,000 rebounds for his career. Um, And I just think that those are unbelievable numbers. And we can talk again, and we've mentioned it several times, about the difference in the game back then. But I still think it's super impressive to be a guy that grabs nearly 20 rebounds a game. I mean, 16 a game, I don't care what era, is so impressive. So I love uh, looking back at those older guys just because it was a skill that was valued. And, you know... The game has statistics that they value in certain eras. Now we value field goal percentage and three point shooters. In a time when the pace was bit, uh, more uh, was was a quicker pace and field goal percentage was not as valued, what stat is going to be valued? Yeah. The rebound. And so when it's a stat that was the most valued at that time, I think that was recognizing that it was what was necessary. It's not as important in the game in some aspects because field goal percentages are at, you know, are higher and the offensive rating is higher. Yeah, it's a, it's a different game, and I think rebounding reflects it. It's the skill that was necessary. Um, so I have Bob Pettit, and I have one more. So I'd like to throw out a couple of these surprise ones here. Um, I have Jerry Lucas, and his was really, really okay. interesting. Okay. Jerry Lucas was a lot like Jerry. First of all, if you are a white guy from the Midwest named Jerry, you grab boards like a maniac. <laughs>
1: um,
0: that is that is something just for, you know, people to keep an eye on. That's a, that's a stat trend. Um, Jerry Lucas was high up there in terms of the, the rebounding numbers for uh, a power forward. So he is an Ohio State uh, grad for his career. Career, he was over 15 rebounds. I've seen where prime parts of his career, he was at like sometimes 18. Um, I think when you look on basketball reference, it says that he was at like 15 rebounds a game. So he's in like the range where he is averaging, you know, some seasons, 20 rebounds a game. Earlier in his career, when he played for the Cincinnati Royals, he's getting 20 rebounds a game. Um, and this is a guy that's listed at 6'8". Okay. Playing in an era of the Russells and Chamberlains, um, 20 rebounds a game. I think he ends his career with like 15.6 rebounds a game. That's crazy impressive. Like I don't, I don't care the era, his size, that time period. When you're getting 15 and 15, I, you know I tip my cap to you. That's, yeah, that's a that's a pretty amazing number. So um, the round number rebound, Bob Pettit, and then the very underrated uh, Jerry Lucas as
1: a rebounder rounds out my power forward list. Dude, I like that list, and I'm a little bit jealous that you put the Jerry Lucas and the Bob Pettits on there because those, I think those are guys, and particularly maybe not just guys, but an era that maybe gets overlooked by a lot of people. And so being able to bring some of those guys to light and talk about the numbers that they were able to go get, um, obviously the game has changed, but I'm, I'm with you. I think rebounding is something that that used to have a whole lot of luster and, like, almost prestige to it. Absolutely agree. And I think it's lost that a little bit because I think now the emphasis is so much on can you score, can you shoot? But back then it was simply can you put up numbers? And and for those guys, you know, rebounding was some of the numbers that they needed to put up. And regardless of how you want to slice and dice NBA history, uh, going and getting north of 13, north of 15 rebounds a game for your career is absurd. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I I think that's that's exactly it. I mean, We, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if we look back at the game now, there's going to be something that they're going to say, why did they value that? Right. You know, one of the things that people talk about now in the game, and I know we're getting off track a little bit, but it's a good discussion here. The triple-double is something that people are fascinated with in today's game. But will we look back at one time and think, oh, that's not super efficient because maybe one person had the ball too much? You know, Harden had a lot of triple-doubles. Luka gets a lot of triple-doubles. But they have the ball in their hands a lot and it's proving that it's not super efficient. So there may be some merit to every era having a number that was valued at the time and then later you look back and think maybe that was just that part of you know, that part of the game then. Rebounding was, other than scoring, the most valued skill you could have. You had one or two guys that could shoot back then and everyone else needed to grab the board. And the power forward until we get to the Carl Malone-Barkley era, the Power Forward did one thing out there. They grabbed yeah. rebounds. Um, they were a defender and they rebounded. And then you got to some guys like Barkley and Malone, and then all of a sudden the Power Forward became fashionable because you got the Duncans and the Chris Webbers and the Kevin Garnetts out of that era. But I think the Power Forward was, was—they, you know, they, they lived up to their name. They were out there to block out and get rebounds and defend.
1: Yeah, do you think a little off-topic, but do you think we're at a point where within the next five to ten years we're looking at the triple-double with an entirely different perspective? 100%. hundred
0: yeah, percent. I think when you look at the way Jokic does it, and I'm going to love on Jokic here again, his, his triple-doubles, he has the ball a lot, but not for long periods of time. You know what I mean? He touches it often, but it's out of his hands very quickly. He has the most passes of any player in basketball. Luca and James Harden, not knocking on them. Westbrook as well, not knocking on them. They're super impressive. They're some the, of the best players you've ever seen. But when you have the ball, Trey Young, another one. When you have the ball that often, you are going to get a lot of numbers because you're, the possession is always ending with you. Usage rate is something that's boosting these numbers. I draft that's how I draft fantasy basketball. If you have a high usage rate, I draft you my fantasy team. Because all the possessions end with you. You know, we'll play a category league. I'll win every category most weeks. I'll win ten if we have eleven categories, I'll win ten and lose one. I lose the turnover one. Because I get the highest usage rate guy at every position. They win all of the they win all of the categories and they win turnovers, which is bad. But when they have the ball that much, the triple-double loses its value because you have it all the time. It's sort of like looking at, and again, love him, looking at Kobe, having incredible scoring numbers in those early mid-2000s, 2005, 6, 7, 8, put up big numbers, shot the ball every time. Yeah. So, you know, Kobe was called clutch. Well... He is clutch, but he took every last second shot. Some of them are going to go in. So I think when you look back in the old days, and we're getting to the really, really good rebounders in those days too, the big men, there's a lot of rebounds to be had. It was what was valued. In the mid-2000s, post-Jordan, ISO scores, put up a lot of points, not super efficient. Iverson and Kobe, great scores, took every shot. Now we're looking at triple-double, guys. Well, when you have the ball that often, you're going to put up great numbers and it's just because you touch it.
1: Yeah. Well, and to go with that, where are you at as far as we, we mentioned there we've got the bigs left. Who are your bigs that you've got in your all-time great rebounding category? I think you and I will probably share some here.
0: Yes. So I actually want to preface this, and I feel like we're going to have a discussion about these two gentlemen. Um, I put them in a different category because it's not even close, and it's just ridiculous. Um I put Chamberlain and Russell in a different category, and they're in my centers. But I have three others along with them, and I feel like it's worth a discussion for just those two. They double everyone. Yeah, they double all rebounds, and it's not even close. Will Chamberlain is the all-time leading rebounder, and Bill Russell is second still. Bill Russell, I'm sorry, Will Chamberlain averaged 22.9. So, 23 rebounds a game for his career.
1: Yeah, he, he finished with 23,924.
0: <laughs> yep, that is the number that I have as well. That's just ridiculous. I mean, and again, we talked about that, but I don't care. 23. 000, basically, 24,000 rebounds and at 23 a game. He had 27 rebound seasons when he came to the league. I mean, that one season in like 60, um, 61 and 62. He averaged 50 rebound. I'm sorry, 50 points a game, 25 rebounds a game. And no, we're not talking about points, but good grief.
1: <laughs>
0: 50 and 25. Uh, can you, we talked about time. Last time around here, can you imagine go back in time and having the number one pick in your fantasy draft in 1961? No question. There's no question. You will, you will give any amount of money to win that league
1: to uh, pay
0: for that pick. So I have, I have Chamberlain, and then not to be overlooked in this discussion as well as Bill Russell, because his numbers yeah. are very, very close. Um, he averaged 22 and a half rebounds for his career, and he finished his career with, correct me if I'm wrong, 21,620 rebounds.
1: Yeah, that's what I got.
0: Um, I'll let you take it there, but I'm assuming those two guys are on your list, and I just think they deserve a conversation for themselves. Yeah,
1: and I put Russell and Wilt both at number one and number two on my list. I, I You can argue probably which one is number one and which one is number two. Um, I put Russell at number one simply based on um, – success in NBA championships and what he was able to do from a rebounding perspective uh, on those Celtics teams that won 11 NBA championships. Wilt there at number two, but again, I think you're splitting hairs. Whenever whenever you're talking about any, whatever the category is, if you're talking about all-time greats at anything and you're talking number one and number two, uh, you're probably splitting hairs. But with Russell and Wilt, I think they're head and shoulders above the rest of the NBA. And position aside, uh, I think as far as a rebounding category, those two are head and shoulders above anybody else. Uh, Who else are you looking at from a rebounding perspective in the center position?
0: Yes, so quickly, we mentioned 1962. I want to throw out another rebounding record from 1962. You mentioned the... Playoff success with it. And I remembered this record, and I wanted to look it up just to make sure. On two separate occasions, and I want, and so I look at the date here, March 29, 1960, April 18, 1962, Bill Russell has the single-game rebounding record for an NBA Finals game, and he did it twice. I'll give you a guess. What would you guess the single-game rebounding record for an NBA Finals game would be? Bill Russell holds it.
1: I'm gonna say (laughs) twenty-six.
0: You ready? On two
1: occasions, he (laughs) grabbed
0: forty rebounds in an NBA finals game. I had seen that on a graphic.
1: Did anyone else rebound like to make
0: sure? I I knew it and I had to go look it up to make sure. But it on two separate occasions, he grabbed 40. I don't care what era it is. 40 rebounds in a finals game. By the way. They're playing the Lakers. So this is against Elgin Baylor. This is against Bob Pettit of the St. Louis Hawks. This is not, you know, Joe Schmo. Everyone talks about, oh, these guys were plumbers. These guys were playing against small guys. No, no, no. This is against other greats. These are guys we mentioned earlier. 40 rebounds. It's just, it makes me, like, that, I
1: I don't know what else to say. Somebody tell Bob Cousy to get on the glass and help his boy out. What are we doing?
0: Yeah, I mean that's you talk about set up the Man. defense for Russell Westbrook to get a rebound. Forty is absurd. <laughs> Team USA didn't grab forty rebounds in the whole tournament. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's just staggering. So those guys are in a category of their own. I don't care what era. Forty is forty. Uh, yeah, I saw that graphic in an ESPN like Finals game, and I was like, I have to look that up to make sure I'm not just throwing out an absurd number. Yeah, forty.
1: And he did it twice.
0: Yeah, twice.
1: 40. That's unbelievable. 40. <laughs> that's going to be the title of the podcast. 40. By
0: right? the way, the name of this episode would be Bill Russell grabbed 40 rebounds in the finals twice. Good Lord. Uh, that's unbelievable. Um,
1: <laughs> You've got college teams uh, that don't get that 40 now. rebounds in a night.
0: Yeah. If, if, if someone did that now, Twitter would explode.
1: Oh yeah, so the internet. The internet would break. Found
0: really interesting, and they are from an older era. But again, it was a stat that was valued then. Um, we have to mention. I have to mention Moses Malone. Yeah, um,
1: I, yeah, I he, have, was, I, I he you was. had him
0: as well. Uh, I have him at just over twelve rebounds a game for his career. You have that as well. I, I believe that's what I. Yeah, uh, he was on He researched. was.
1: He was borderline fringe on my list.
0: Yeah, and then. Um, Over 16,000 rebounds. I mean, the man known for being a double-double, jokingly, but they said maybe padded his stats with missed shots on purpose to grab a couple extra boards and tip it in. Yeah. I mean, he was the unsung hero of the 80s. I mean, there's a lot of bird and magic talk, but Moses was up there, a multi-time MVP, the best rebounder in the league for a long, long time. You can't talk about rebounding without the with Chamberlain Russell, but Moses is in that conversation Yeah. If you're looking for the best rebounding bigs of all time. I mean Well and I
1: mean he's I'm a guy sure. that with those 76ers teams that upset the Celtics a couple of times and made some runs to the NBA Finals. So, I mean, not only was he an all time great rebounder, but I mean, dude was on an all time great team and all time great player without question.
0: I, I think he's a guy that now is just completely overlooked in this league. There's, a, there's yeah. just these guys from each era that aren't talked about. Moses is up there with any player ever.
1: Well, and as a um, center, you probably look at him being a little bit undersized, maybe. Uh, yeah, not with. But let's, Thanks, not, right let's not scoff at the fact that uh, dude was one of the first guys out of high school Yes. to go to the NBA. So...
0: I don't know how you guard. I saw a picture of him, and it was him in high school with his Letterman jacket. I don't know who guards him. You don't. Uh, <laughs> in high school, you don't. You know. Okay, I have another big, strong guy, and we want to talk not as much height, but definitely width. Not Indiana guy, but he's just south of the river. Okay. Wes Unseld. I like that. River, 14 rebounds a game for his career. Now, there's some interesting stats I'm gonna throw in here. So he's just under 15,000 rebounds. I think I, I I think I read 14,769. Okay. Uh, if you could maybe fact check me there, but I think that's yeah about where he finished. Yeah. But here's an interesting stat. My next two guys have this, and I think it's important. He's under a thousand games for his career. He's at nine hundred eighty four games. So we're getting into some guys who grabbed a ton of boys. Wes Unseld, um, probably the best rebounder of his era. You look the late '60s, Rookie of the Year, I think in 1969, and then the 1970s, a guy who dominated the boards. And as a center, very wide, very strong, not very tall. Six-foot-seven is what he's listed at, at the center position. Playing against Chamberlain and Jabbar and Bill Walton and some of these other names we've thrown out there. And you're getting 15 rebounds a game. In, at heights of your career, more than that. And you're playing under a 1,000 games and you're still up there. Wes Unseld is... That's how he made his name. He is yeah. a rebounding machine, an offensive rebounding machine, and one of the guys that really um, was a pioneer of that rebound outlet
1: in transition. Oh, one of the you talk about the outlet pass, the <laughs> yeah. outlet. Like in all fairness, the outlet pass starts with Wes Unseld. Yes, and he was one of those guys that was like the, the the ultimate outlet because he would grab a rebound and he could. He was strong enough to throw the outlet to the other end of the court. So it wasn't like, catch it, okay, point guard on the wing, little shuffle outlet, jog to the other end. Like, dude was full-blown, original Kevin Love, full-court outlet, starting the fast break, yeah.
0: Absolutely, love it. Those were fun. Uh, I watch a lot of 70s era basketball, some of my favorite to go back and watch, and and that guy's a monster. Um, I'm going to throw my last one here. His numbers really stood out to me. Because I talked about playing under a thousand games, um, 888 career games, low number. Finishing at over 13,000, 13,674. I'm gonna double check to make sure I didn't write this down incorrectly. But what I have is in my research, 15.7 rebounds a game. Okay, Nate Thurman. Oh, okay. Of the of the uh, Golden State Warriors, San Francisco Warriors. Um, A a guy who is underrated, not one of the all-time greats in terms of guys you'd think up there, but that number, uh, he finished his career, yes, at over 15 rebounds a game. um, At times was, uh, two times as I go back and look, over 20 rebounds a game, which is unbelievable. Um, Again, don't care what the area is. 20 rebounds a game is 20 rebounds a game. Over 15 is 15. Nate Thurman's on the list, and to be at that number... That high and play—he was the lowest number I think of career games on the list that I saw for centers. I think he was in the top ten, possibly, okay. um, for centers. That and to be that low in, in terms of games—that's what's impressive to me. You play two, three, four hundred less games than some of these guys. Yeah, you know, you got guys like now, like Dwight Howard, who have played for a long time and he's not in the league anymore. But you know, people talk about you know some of these other guys that got to play for a long time, and he's out rebounding guys like, or in the same conversation as Elijah Olajuwon and Ewing and, and Moses, and and he's playing two, three, four, five hundred less games from these guys. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Who else you
1: got? <clears throat> well, I went Russell, Wilt, and we've had that conversation. Um, third guy on my list is Shaq. Oh, yeah. And, of course. And in, in large part, if nothing else, um, the numbers that he put up in the NBA Finals – and his first couple of trips uh, were just absurd. And when you when you think about a guy that in his prime, whether you talk about Orlando Shaq, whether you're talking about L.A. Shaq, was arguably the most dominant. When we talk about, you know, how do you guard this guy? Well, in the NBA, you didn't guard Shaq, and he no. changed the game in the sense that teams had to load up with two, three, and four big men just to have enough fouls to commit on Shaq. Uh, in the NBA Finals, he was there one, two, three, four, five, six times. He averaged twelve and a half rebounds. The year that the the Magic played played Houston, uh, his year where they I think he against got his yeah, that's against the one. He went for 28 and almost 13 against one in 94-95. And then their three-peat starts there in L.A. with Shaq and Kobe. Against the Pacers, he averaged 38 and 17, which is, uh, yeah, you're sitting there, and I obviously they can't see you, but your hands are like, yeah, I had the same reaction, hand over mouth, because you don't, like, that's, that's almost laughable. In the NBA Finals, like he's doing that against Rick Smiths, Dell Davis, Antonio Davis, goes for thirty-eight and seventeen. The second year against, I believe it was the Nets, or no, it was yep. uh, it was, it was Philly. Philly, Philly, Philadelphia. So against Akimbe Matumbo, he goes for thirty-three and sixteen. And then the next year against the Nets, which I've heard plenty of podcasts with like Richard Jefferson and those guys, and he and and Jefferson said he goes. We didn't need good big men. We just needed big men. Yeah, just a body. And just a body to commit fouls, so that they've got enough simply bodies to serve. Uh, so again, first year of the three peat, thirty-eight and seventeen. Second year against Philly, thirty-three and sixteen. And then the third year against the Nets, thirty-six and twelve. Holy moly! In the NBA Finals. Um, In the 03-04 season against the Pistons where they got upset, he went for 27-11. and Uh, But over the course of his career, Shaq averaged 11 rebounds per game, averaged 14 per game in the finals. And, again, as as far as big men, I think that as far as our list goes, those, those are the three best centers of all time. And probably, when you talk about Wilton Shaq, the two most unguardable players of all time.
0: Yeah, and, and that stat to me goes into dominance. Like I think a dominant player, a big man, when when that's something that you know that they control for sure. Yeah. Um, wow, that that's a very fun conversation, and I feel like we could probably uh, really get into that one uh, and spend a lot of time just because that, that makes me want to look into and you know research that a lot more because that's just something that I just find to be just across eras. Those sort of statistics, those those lost guys within those conversations that we don't think about anymore, that aren't talked about anymore, um, that maybe need to be appreciated. Yeah. Um, and you know, future parents out there, if you're, you're wanting a you know a a young man that's going to be a great rebounder, move to the Midwest and name him Jerry. I think that's a <laughs> lesson we learned here. If their name isn't Wilt or Shaquille, we may want to thank Jerry from Ohio.
1: <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Go ahead and just name he, your kid Jerry and.
0: There's two rules of rebound. You're either the stilt or you're Jerry from Ohio. That's it. That's that. <laughs> that's the great rebound. Uh, <laughs> um, this is the fun one. We'll be back here soon. Uh, some fun interviews coming uh, in the near future, as well as some really fun, exciting basketball topics. Absolutely. Uh, News and, and is right around the corner. It will be here before you know it. Um, Thanks for joining us. Follow us on social media, Pick a Fence Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, thanks again for joining us and for always here on the Pick a Fence Podcast.
1: Don't, Don't get, caught get caught watching the, watching paint, the dry. paint dry.